So we've been doing this study in the book of Acts. And as we approach our fifth year as a church, and I just have felt since January, really, before we had any notice of anything, I really felt like we were in a transition period this year. And, you know, here we are in October, we're still transitioning, but I, I believe it's coming. I believe we're going to change into a, a different kind of church, which isn't a good thing, a bad thing. I don't even have a plan for that. I'm not telling you I have a vision, but I think we're going to mature as a church uh, starting next week and we're going to start uh, next week, <laughs> prophetic, <laughs> prophetic right there, start, starting, starting uh, next year. And, and I believe that, the, that God wants us to become uh, better at what we're doing, whatever that is. And so um, I thought, well, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up? We should go take a look at the original church because this is inarguably the greatest church of all time is the church we see in the book of Acts. I mean, they were exactly what Jesus wanted out of a church. So how do we get to be them? How do we be like them? And so that's where we are. So we've been going through this and we've been following through um, the Bible. Now, the Bible does some things that if you don't understand the Bible seem weird. Like it'll repeat phrases over and over again. Have you noticed that? Sometimes in the same sentence. You're like, man, why are you... You know, we get it, we get it. You're just kind of pounding me with the same phrase. Uh, the reason is because it's setting you up. <laughs> it's usually trying to set this up where then when they counter something, it, it stands out, right? God does this in Genesis. In the creation story, you know, after every day, you hear God say, and it was good. You know, we, he saw it, and it was good. He goes through the entire creation, he keeps repeating, and it was good. It was good. Oh, we get it. It was good. You're good at what you do. We get it. Why are you always telling me that? Well, the reason why is because in Genesis 2, he goes back into the creation story, and he gives us a detailed look at day 6. That's when he creates man and woman. Now, in the first chapter, he just simply says man and woman. He creates them. And, and it was good, right? But in chapter two, he goes back and he, sp he kind of splits that apart. So he look, goes into detail on day six and we see what it was like before woman came along. So he created a man and all this stuff's happening and all these things are going on. And then God says this, and he saw it was not good, right? So he's trying to draw emphasis to why he created woman. There was a reason for it. It's because it wasn't good. You know, God wants to create good. And so this whole, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good in chapter one is setting up that it was not good in chapter two. And if you miss that, then God's like, I don't know how I could have made it more clear. That was important. You know, there's a lot of things you need to know about it. Uh, so he does that again. He does that in Acts because if you look in the book of Acts, a lot of times they're using, he's using phrase that the author Luke is using phrases like, and they were in one accord and they were all together and there was, and there's unity. And you always hear every chapter, but it kind of stopped last week. I don't know if you noticed. Last week, the unity kind of stopped because we had two people who tried to play gamesmanship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. Things change at that point. That book ends not, and they were all together in one unity, but people began to fear the Lord. <laughs> it was a change. And now we're going to see it changes more. You'll never see him again go back saying there was unity because the unity's kind of gone. And there's a reason for that. The reason is they got bigger. You got more people, you got more problems. And, and so you start getting a lot of people coming, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to find more and more problems because people bring their problems with them. Uh, I had a very wise preacher once tell me when I was disappointed in the way some church people were asking, he says, your problem, Mark, is you think that church is a finishing school for saints. It's not. It's a hospital for sick people. And I've, I've never forgotten that. You know, that kind of has helped reset my idea of church. People bring in their problems when they come. And that's what's happening here as well. So here's what happens next. Now, we believe, when I say we, most theologians believe, I actually don't count myself, theologians believe about 12,000 people were here about this time. 12,000 people. They'd grown to 12,000. Started with about 120. 
now at about uh, 12,000. So that's a pretty good growth. Uh, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose from the Grecian Jews against native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Let me stop for just a second. I don't know if you've noticed, but widows are a big deal to God in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. It talks about them all the time. Do not cheat a widow. If you're buying a house off a widow, pay her what she asks. Do not cheat a widow because God's very clear. He does not take it very kindly on people who try to cheat widows. That's because widows and orphans, by the way, the two things that God's always talking about how we need to take care of widows and orphans because in that culture, they couldn't take care of themselves. Widows, the way that things were kind of structured, when a man died, all of his belongings went to his family. Now, it was their job to take care of the widow. And that was how it was worked. Uh, a lot of times they didn't. A lot of times they would just kind of take the stuff and leave her out in the cold. Literally, you know, widows could literally die from starvation. We see that happen, if you remember, in the, in the Old Testament story uh, with Elijah. It uh, comes up in a widow and her son, and she's going to bake one more cake, and then they're going to die because she has no food, no way of getting food. So God's always very keen that we need to take care of the widows and the orphans because they can't take care of themselves. Well, here's a church starting, and they're doing the right thing. Well, the widows among us, we need to take care of. And so they just start treating them you know, like they're all family, and we're going to take care of the widows. Except for, for some reason, the Grecian Jews, widows, were getting skipped, or they weren't getting full portions. And so they bring that complaint to the apostles. And so the 12 summoned the congregation of disciples, that's basically everybody, all the believers at that point, and says, look, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So basically, this is Peter talking, and basically what Peter says is, look, <laughs> we're not here to serve tables. We're not waiters and waitresses. We're, that's not what we're here for, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, right? But I love that because that's like how I would respond to it probably. Hey, I'm not a waiter. What are you asking me? But he's saying it's not good for us to do it. Now, this is a very, very important thing that they do. And there's kind of two tracks to today's sermon. I'll try to keep one limited. But one track is to the church as we grow. And the other track is to us as Christians. So, you know, kind of be flipping back and forth. But to the church, this is something that we have to learn. Um, successful ministry is learning how to say no to good things. And I don't know if you guys have had that experience yet, where you've come to us with an idea, and we've said, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, why don't you do it? I've actually, had, I've actually had that conversation with multiple people, and they get offended. Well, I thought you would do it. No, I've got my things to do. It's called Spirit Chapel, and I'm full. I don't know if you know this, but my, my, you know, I have two jobs outside of this. I'm full. I got no more, no more cycles in my day. This is a great idea, and if God's laid on your heart, he probably laid on your heart so you could do it. I can't do it. And uh, like I said, some people have gotten offended with that. Like, oh, you don't like my ideas. I don't think your ideas are great, but it's not my idea. And we were actually told this when, when we, before we started Spirit Chapel, uh, I would talk with any preacher who would listen to me talk <laughs> and ask them questions and write things down. And every preacher I knew and some I didn't know, I reached out to. And one of the ones who really surprised me by saying yes, in fact, in fact was very gracious, is Matt Kaltenberger, who's the founding pastor of Grace, uh, Church in, Grace Community Church in Cranberry. Uh, it's, it was at the time one of the 50 fastest growing churches in America. And uh, he took three hours out of his day, he and his wife, to meet with Victoria and me to talk to us. It was really a great meeting. They're terrific people. And um, he just told me stuff I was writing down, and some of it has almost turned prophetic, and this is what he told me. He says, You're gonna, you, here's, here's what will ruin your ministry, saying yes to too many good things. You guys stay focused on what God called you to do, and that's it. 
And that means you're going to say no to good things. And some people are going to get mad at you for it. And some people are going to lose the, leave the church for it. But you have to stay focused on what God called you to do. And this is what the disciples are actually doing here. They came and said, look, this is a problem that we're having with this ministry of giving food to the, to the widows. Is that a good ministry? Yeah, it's a great ministry. It's not the disciples' ministry, though, and it's not their purpose. And so they set this up and said, look, it's not good for us to do that. It says, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, that we can put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we've got our job. This is our job. Our job is to study God's word and to make sure that we preach God's word correctly. That's our job. That's a very important job, and that's all we should be doing. That is brilliant, by the way. It shows that their focus is exactly what they need. But it's important, so we want somebody else to do it. So here's what we want you to do since you came to us with the problem. You go out and you find seven people. Now, I want to point out one thing. That's seven people to help oversee 1,200, I mean 12,000 people. That's a lot of responsibility for those seven. Now, they actually have three qualifications that they give. Them. They just go say, hey, pick seven people. They gave them specific qualifications for the people. And I'm going to come back to that because that tells us a lot about what their qualifications were. But the statement found approval in the whole congregation. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now watch Nicholas. Nicholas is a proselyte from Antioch. Did you see there's only two people that get called out with more than a name? Stephen, because the rest of this chapter is all about Stephen, and Nicholas, he tells he's a proselyte from Antioch. What's a proselyte? A proselyte is somebody who was a Gentile who converted to Judaism and now has moved from Judaism to Christianity. But they started as Gentile. I believe that the reason why the Greek widows were getting short-shrifted was because they used to be Gentiles and the Jews didn't think they were that important. So there's a little bit of a, of, of a level here of, of kind of starting in the church already when there's different you know well they're a little holier than you are because they're pure jews and you're converted jew right by the way that goes on today too it's not like churches got rid of that uh, it's like we just add more levels but uh you know so that's kind of what was going on so they pick a guy from them as one of the seven so he's going to represent his people and that's very very important in this little thing so Watch this now, though. The word of God kept on spreading. Why? Because the disciples focused on what they were supposed to do. My job, Peter says, is to study the word and preach the word. And because he's doing his job, the word of the Lord keeps spreading. And because the word of the Lord keeps spreading, everybody keeps coming. Everybody's being drawn to this area. Because if you want to be a Christian in this day, this is it. This is the one church you can go to. People are literally coming from countries away to come here to this church. And that's why they're growing into mega church status. So real quick, let me, just, let me just hit a couple highlights that are messages to the church that you know, we're going to kind of start forming some of our decisions in upcoming days. Uh, and then we'll get back to what you, know, you can take away personally from this message. Uh, first of all, it surprised me to realize that we're talking about a mega church big enough that it would have been one of the biggest churches in America had it been here. Um, there are people, there are churches with multiple campuses that get more than 1,200 people out, uh, or 12,000 people out. But there aren't many, in fact, I don't think there are any who get them in one spot. This would have been a huge megachurch in America, let alone back in those days. It's huge, 12,000 people coming. Okay, so uh, here's what really baffled me about that when I realized it. 
I always thought, I've been told by many, many people, by the way, not just one, many, many people, uh, if I, you know, when I was telling them, you know, we're starting a church, I don't even go to church anymore, I don't need church. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's good to know. Uh, why? Well, church is like, even, it's even not real, it's not biblical. Church is not biblical. Uh, I've been told that. Uh, okay, that, explain that to me. They said, well, the beginning church wasn't even really a church, it was just like small groups meeting in people's homes. That's what they're being, you know, if you look back in, in the early days of the church in the book of Acts, that's what it is. No, it's not. They're a mega church, that's what they are. It's not just a bunch of people meeting in homes. Now, it'll split up later during persecution times. They hide. But right now, when it was just organically growing because of the Spirit, they grew into becoming a megachurch. Of course, this is the only place you can hear the gospel. This is it. Of course, everybody's going to come to it. So that was interesting to me. The other thing is they're fully Spirit-led. There's no government here. None. They have no government. They're just led by the Spirit. They have 12 people, all equal. Peter seems to be a spokesperson, but all equal, all being led by the Spirit. And that has grown them to 12,000 people. That's pretty good. So here was their model for growth, by the way. Uh, We're going to study the Word and preach the Word. And we're going to do what the Word tells us. That's a pretty good model. But here's the other thing. Uh, You know, we we will say today, you'll hear churches say, well, we are committed to God's Word or or "We, we are diligent in God's Word. But what they mean by that is the preacher preaches out of the Bible every week. What they meant by were, were, uh, is that we do the Bible. We don't just study the Bible. We don't just read the Bible. We don't just preach the Bible. We do the Bible. When the Bible said take care of widows, we're taking care of the widows. Right? Whatever the Bible said, they did. And it was this kind of a selling out to the, just whatever the Spirit says and whatever the Word says that let them grow. It's a pretty good thing. And here's what's really great about this growth model. They don't care. The disciples never set out to have a megachurch. They never set out to have 12,000 people coming. That was not their plan. Their plan was to study the word, preach the word, do the word. That was their plan. They don't care, you see, whether 12,000 people show up, 1,200 people show up, or 12 shows up, because when all you want to do is meet God, it doesn't matter how many people are there. Their model was simply, we're going to learn God. We're going to all learn about God. We're going to just get closer to God. That's our model. Uh, 12,000 people come, great. 12 people come, great. doesn't matter. We want God to come. If God's here, we have a successful service. And that's what they're focused on. Uh, there was no ruling elder. Every mega church or even decently sized church will have somebody in charge of it outside the preacher. Because, you know, he doesn't want to be running the day-to-day minutia. Up until this moment, they had nobody except the disciples running. And, and they had 12 of them. I don't even know how they decided who preached when. I mean, that was something. No egos were involved, clearly. Here's something else interesting. Ministry was being done without the apostles' oversight. We know that because this whole thing with widows seems to surprise them. Right? They weren't overseeing it, clearly. They may not have even come up with the idea. Somebody just said, hey, you know, do you remember that sermon Peter preached and he was talking about taking care of widows? We ought to do that. And yeah, let's take care of the widows. And they just started doing it. See, I really think that's kind of the dynamic of a church, a healthy church. Ministry just gets done. Uh, going back to Grace and Cranberry Church, just briefly, there was a guy who was teaching a class on the Bible, and um, I, I was on their webpage, and I saw that, so I reached out to him. I said, I'd love to get that curriculum. This is before we started the church, we, but we had a small group. I said, we'd love to f- see this curriculum. He said, well, I haven't written it yet, but come on up. I'll talk to you about it. So I went up and to Cranberry, and they, he bought me coffee, and I said, so are you a, we, you know, I was looking for you on the masthead. Are, are you like a pastor here at, at Grace Community Church? Because I'm one of 2,200 2, pastors at Grace Community Church. That was how many people they had coming. I'm one of 2,200. 
I love that attitude. It's like we're all pastors. We're all ministers. We all, we all do stuff. It's just that's, I think, appropriate. And that's what was happening here. And here's what blew me away. 12,000 people need to be served. Yeah, let's add seven. We'll add seven people you know, to, to our oversight committee here. And we're good then. Can you imagine 12,000 people? How many people get added in an American church? <laughs> I can. It'd be several hundred. Man, 12,000 people. You're going to need this structure and this structure. We're always about setting up structures in government. But God's church wasn't designed to be set up as a government. It was designed to be set up by spirit-led people. When God's in charge, he can handle the details. Uh, we need government in, in, in layers and layers and layers because we can't handle the details as well. But God was handling it then. Okay, finally, uh, these people they selected, the seven they selected, were representative of the, of the area that they, were rep- that they served for. So, in other words, we just picked the seven best people we could find. We picked seven people that were split up amongst all the people. The Greeks were equally counted in the people that were going to serve. I think that's interesting. Okay, so, done with that. Let me now move on to the three qualifications. And, the, and let me tell you why this is important. This is important because these three qualifications show what God looks for in us. Now, you might not think, well, I'm not really a leader in church. I'm not trying to be a leader in church. I don't want to be a leader in church. But that doesn't matter. What God is throwing out here through the disciples, these three qualifications, and these three qualifications please him to the point that he's going to entrust them with real riches. Now, let me explain what that means. Jesus told his disciples that there are good riches and there are bad riches. There are false riches and there are true riches. And he's very, very specific that the people who get to the true riches are the people who deserve it. It's Christianity and everything, it's kind of a meritocracy. It really is. To whom much is given, much is expected. And he's saying, I'm only going to give the true riches to the people who deserve it. Now, when I say words like that, some of you are getting uncomfortable, I can tell, because you think I'm going to talk about money. But apparently, Jesus didn't consider that real riches. In fact, in Luke 16, he says this. Look, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, which is basically everything. Let me just, let me just rephrase that. Let's just say worldly riches, because that's how Jesus feels about them. And so, if you've not been faithful in worldly riches, who's going to trust you with true riches? He says, I'm not. This is almost a throw. Jesus does this. He'll like, he tells a story. We could cop in a story, and then he throws a zinger at the end, and we miss it because we're still trying to understand the story. He does that right here. This is thrown at the end of a story. He says, look, if you haven't been faithful in earthly riches, why in the world would my dad trust you with the real riches? Well, what's the real riches then? Because I thought that was the real riches. Right? If I told you you're going to be rich, we would all be thinking what we're going to buy with it, right? He's saying, no, that's nothing. That's unrighteous wealth. That's earthly riches. That doesn't matter. The true riches is what God holds back to only the people who deserve it. That's what he's saying. So what's the true riches? Well, you are. You understand you're the only thing on earth worth dying for, right? Because Jesus died for you. You're the only thing worth dying for. You're the true riches. People are the true riches. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. Look, if I can't trust you with money, why in the world would I trust you with people? People are my true riches. So when God's saying, I have some people, and make no mistake, he knew exactly the seven people who were going to be called forth because he knew who they were. They didn't. They had to pick them. But God knew already. And so he was saying, I'm going to call seven more to join the twelve because they've pleased me, and I'm ready to trust them with real riches. 
They're going to be in charge of the people of the church. And his qualifications were this, full of spirit. Well, that makes sense, right? We want him full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, of good reputation, going to come back to that, and act with wisdom, full of wisdom, acts with wisdom. Well, does anybody know what the beginning of wisdom is? From Proverbs 9, fear the, fear the Lord. Wisdom begins with fear of the Lord, which is God the Father, right? Of course, if you're full of the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you, this second, this second one here, good reputation, is all about Jesus. So basically, these three qualifications cover the entire trinity. Full of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And you know there are people today, to this day, who still despise the Holy Spirit. They want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit in their lives. Well, they're out. Can't trust them, because without the Spirit to guide them, they're lost. And acts with wisdom, the beginning of the wisdom is fear of the Lord. And it, the beginning of the wisdom is fear of the Lord, but if you follow Proverbs, you'll find out from there God, God leads you into wisdom, right? But that's, that's all about learning to, to you, you first come to God with awe, and then you, then you learn to love, because wow, he loves me, I love him back. So that's the Father. But good reputation, let me, sh- let me break down this word, good reputation, because reputation means a lot of things to people. Does that mean that you can never do anything wrong that anybody sees because you've got to worry about your reputation? Because that's what I would think, right? I've got to rep. I've got to keep my rep up. I can't ever, I can ever admit that Victoria and I fight because pastors aren't supposed to fight. So I've got to you know, make sure no one ever hears that. We fight in private when no one can hear it. You know? Not in Giant Eagle parking lot like we usually do. We've got to watch for this because we have a reputation. You know, we've got to maintain here. That's not what this word means, thank God because I like our fights in the giant eagle parking lot. Okay, uh, this word here, the Greek word here, means to testify with absolute truth. Sometimes it's you know, translated with good report, it's a good report or a good testimony, but it really means a totally truthful testimony. In other words, these guys are famous for telling the truth. You know, the old, the old, the old um, James Cadney once gave advice to somebody, and he said, oh, it's simple. You plant your feet, you face the wind, you tell the truth. That's what it is. That's who they are. They plant the feet, they face the wind, they tell the truth. That's who they are. No matter what, they tell the truth. No matter if it's going to benefit them or not, they're going to tell the truth. They love the truth. In fact, they not only tell the truth about things they see, they, they really, this is the second definition, they really like to tell the truth about things that have been revealed to them. Can't wait to tell you the truth about what God has said to them and shown them. Even if it makes them look bad, that doesn't matter because what matters is the truth. Well, there's a reason why this is really, really important. From a standpoint, just pragmatism, well, of course, we're putting them in charge of food. And we want people to trust them. Well, where there is no truth, there can be no trust. If somebody lies to you all the time, do you trust them? No. So it makes sense, but it goes beyond that because what we're trying to say is that Jesus Christ is calling these people to him because they love truth. Why do you suppose that is? Well, the reason why that is is because Jesus Christ is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How can you love Jesus and not love truth? I I think that sometimes uh, we have have a tendency to play fast and free with the truth when it suits us. And we do this as Christians as well as non-Christians. So I'm I'm going to tell you a story. uh, Now, Stories I tell on myself are usually embarrassing. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. And, and they, they're kind of not necessarily something I enjoy telling, but I feel like God convicts me. This is one that's not so embarrassing, except when I look back on it, I'm very embarrassed by it. This is one of my most embarrassing stories. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but I have had this kind of loose relationship with truth since I've really become an adult because I'm pretty 
pretty good with words. I can kind of shift things around. Uh, and so I'm good at kind of making the truth sound a certain way, you know? Kind of like that guy from the movie The Knight's Tale, Chaucer. You lied. Yes, yes, I lied. I'm a, I'm a writer. I give the truth scope. That, that was me. Uh, I, I give the truth scope. And it's like, yes, this is true, but let me put it in context so I can make it seem like what I wanted to make it. I, I was really good at that. And I started getting, once you start that, you start doing it all the time. You, your mind's working and you realize, how can I kind of make sure that I tell the truth, but do it in such a way that I don't look bad. I got really, really good at that. Um, and that's kind of embarrassing. But in this story I'm telling you, it was shortly after I started my career in tech, I, I was something called a, I was in my mid-20s, I was something called a sales engineer. And a sales engineer, I was technical, but I worked in sales. I worked with a sales guy. My job as a tech was to go into the customer, who was usually a very big company, and uh, talk to their technical people, geek to geek, and uh, explain to them why our product was really fine. There was no problems with it that they needed, you know, everything was fine. When they believed me, the sales guy came in and says, well, now I'm going to tell you why you need to buy it. And he would close the deal. And I didn't do the sales part. I just got rid of the objections. That was my job. And it, I had never done it before. And so the person who hired me, a woman named Mary Kay, only in Texas, uh, Mary Kay, uh, kind of took a little bit of a chance on me because I was young, uh, but, you know, saw something there, I guess. And so she took a chance on me, gave me this job. And so then I go through all my training, and they put me with people, send me out to show, show me how the job gets done. And I was, you know, kind of trying to feel my way. And then we, uh, we had this one customer, or a, a, not a customer, a prospect, uh, who had had our product for like a year and wouldn't say no, but wouldn't say yes. They were just dragging on. And so it was a big problem because it was, could be a big deal, but, you know, they weren't signing the contract. No one knew why. And so after I was done with all my training, Mary Kay comes in and says, well, we're going to send you to Houston for you to save this deal. And she laughed because, you know, what was really happening was we're getting ready to write them off. It's what we're getting ready to do and say, forget them. But one more last ditch effort, send the, send the noob in. And so they send the rookie in. So this is my chance to show that all the faith they put in me was worth it, you know, and I can, I can do this job. So um, I was in Dallas-Fort Worth. The customer was in, in Houston. And in those days, uh, American Airlines had a subsidiary called American Eagle that they would fly these little tiny hops because it's only about uh, half hour, 45 minutes in the air in order to get there. And uh, they wouldn't even have those up to the, to the airport. They had them like out in the parking lot, out far in the parking lot of the airport at DFW. And you took a bus out to your plane. And like it was a little tiny commuter thing where you get on the thing, everybody get in it, and it, it would drop you off at your plane like it was a bus stop at school almost, right? They would drive around, oh, this is Lubbock, who's going to Lubbock? I'll get out there and, oh, this is Shreveport, who's going to Shreveport? And so you kind of go around. And this is the first time I've ever been on this bus thing. So I'm sitting all the way in the back with a book, because I'm a geek, and I'm reading. And I notice these two people that I was sure, I don't know why, but I was sure they're going to Houston. And anyway, so we're going in, buses getting smaller and smaller as we're going around, uh, you know, people on the bus. And then uh, they said, okay, this is Shreveport. And these two people that were supposed to be going to Houston got up and left. Like, wait a minute, I thought they were going to Houston. And now I'm like the only person left on the bus practically. And I go running up and says, where's Houston? I thought Houston was like the second stop. You should have gotten off way back then. And I was like, oh, can you take me back there now? I said, no, I'm going to go back to the terminal now. You take another bus out. And so, you know, I went back, I got on the second bus, and guess what? <laughs> that plane was taken off. So I just watched it fly away while I rotated around the parking lot one more time. I thought, oh, man, my first chance to show them what I could do, and I missed my flight. This is, this is great. And so I, I call up the sales guy 
uh, who you know, was in the office yet, obviously, because it was still pretty early. And I told him, hey, I wasn't able to catch the flight. Um, I'm coming on the next one. I'll be there late. Could you please tell them? So I get on the next flight, and I get there late. And by the time I roll in, it's like an hour, hour and a half after when the meeting was supposed to start, right? And you walk in the room, you know it's a bad thing when you, they had this, like, half-eaten food tray in the back where people were there, they ate, and they left, you know? And they even told me, well, the vice president was here, but he left. I don't know if he's coming back. And it's like, oh. The sales guy was there, and apparently he told them that my plane had engine trouble, and it got can't, my flight got canceled, and I had to take the next flight. Because uh, so, someone made a comment, I'm setting everything up. Now, I am good with giving the tooth scope, and I have had an hour and a half to work on my excuse, and I, I had it down. I had it in such a way, because even though I wasn't a pastor, of course, or even thinking about being a pastor, I was still a Christian. I wanted to tell the truth, you know. And, and so I, I had it down in such a way that I could tell the exact truth, but still make an American Airlines fault. You know, so I had all this down. I had this whole story set up. I knew exactly what to go with it. And so I stood up, and I'm, I'm getting ready to do my presentation, and I'm sorry I'm late. And I started to give him my excuse, and it just caught in my throat. And there's this expression that Paul uses uh, later. He says that we were going to go into Asia, but the Spirit checked us. Almost like the Holy Spirit puts up a hand and says, nope. You know? And so I, that's what happened to me, because I really literally stopped. Like I, was, I knew I was going to say, and all of a sudden, I just stopped. And I, just, I felt really strongly checked in my spirit. And it's not like I was really overly righteous at that time in my life. But I can't lie like that. I can't. And so I stopped, you know, and I realized I couldn't give my story. Um, and I said, look, here, here's the truth. Uh, the truth is I didn't allow enough time to catch my plane. And I could give you a lot of reasons why it was somebody else's fault, but it's not. It's mine. I should have allowed more time. I should have been here. And I'm sorry. And then I started the presentation. Uh, and it went okay, I guess. You know, spent a couple hours with them. I flew home. And I, st- you know, the sales guy was sitting right there. And so the boy, Mary Kay's going to know the truth now. You know, there's no telling the, you know, the, my story. It's, and so next morning I get to the office and um, her office was next to mine. And I could hear her, hear me come in. I hear her getting up out of her desk and coming in. And she walks into my office. She has a piece of paper in her hand. I'm thinking, oh boy, what's this, you know? Something going to go in my permanent file or something. For all I knew, this was, uh, you know, you have two weeks to vacate the premises. I didn't know what, you know, was going to happen. But she walks in this piece of paper, and she kind of got a weird smile on her face. She goes, what did you do yesterday? And I thought she was asking for my story, you know. I said, you met the plane thing? She goes, no. I mean, when you got there. Now I'm baffled because I thought I did it pretty well once I got there, you know. I said, nothing. She goes, well, I don't know what you did. But she tossed down this fax of my thing. said, but they signed the contract yesterday and sent it to me. That was waiting for me when I got here this morning. So the deal was closed, right? I'm like, wow. I'm like, well, you know, I guess I did all right. And, and here's why I'm embarrassed, because God was trying to get my attention about something really, really important, and I missed it. That telling the truth is really important to him. And when I, um, when I saw them later, because uh, I'd go down to post sales, and we went out to lunch together, I asked him point blank, what happened? Was it just coincidence? Were you guys going to you know, sign the note? I said, oh, no, it was because of your visit. I said, why? They said, look, we always thought your product was pretty good. But every time we'd ask questions, people would dance around the answers. It always made us nervous that there was really something there that was really bad that we just couldn't ferret out. But after you came and stood up there and told us you missed your flight, 
our VP said, well, that guy's not going to lie about anything. He's not going to lie about the stuff he should lie about. You know, it's like everybody was like, he should have lied, and you didn't. But that made us trust everything you said, you know, so we could finally trust them, and so we, we won the product. So anyway, um, again, God trying to tell me right then and there, look, it's okay to tell the truth. In fact, it's necessary to tell the truth, and when you're not telling the truth, you're hurting your relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't lie, even false. Look, I'm going to just kind of just going to try and give the truth scope. No, because that's not who Jesus was. Jesus wants people who absolutely tell the truth, and you have to have that. We know this because if you know, you remember your lessons from from Sunday school when when you go through Christmas. This is a Christmas verse. This is John one. You remember how John one starts out? In the beginning was God, and the Word, and the Word was with God and word was God and all things were created through the word. You know that. I mean, Linus, I think, reads that out to Charlie Brown in the, in the Christmas special. We know this verse. But later on, he says, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the, like, the very first time Jesus is enter- introduced in the Bible is John 1.1. 1, 1. And John 1.1 1, 1 says, here's, here's what we know about him. He's full of grace and truth. This is who he is, right? And his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is truth. Now, if you're saying, well, if, if you're honest with yourself, you say, I've got this kind of odd relationship with the truth, that's telling you that you have an odd relationship with Jesus Christ. Because uh, your relationship with the truth always reveals your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you really connected with Jesus? Maybe take a look at what you're doing with the truth these days. Because we're really good at kind of becoming our own little PR firm. And so we can kind of make things sound good. And even when we tell the truth, it's like, eh, it's a truth, but it's done a certain way. And sometimes we just flat out lie. You know, Ronald Reagan famously was, when, when he came, his first campaign, the one that failed before he became president, he came through Pittsburgh and he pledged support to the unions because he was a union guy. He used to be the head of a union. And uh, later, in order to get an endorsement of some big wig, uh, he had to basically make a pledge uh, to be anti-union. And um, Reagan asked his advisor, well, what do I do about Pittsburgh? If somebody asks me about my pledge in Pittsburgh, the guy famously said, tell him you were never in Pittsburgh. You know, it's like, that's like, <laughs> we can take care of that. You were never there. It's like, we're going to lie. Let's do it right. You were never even there. I don't know what you're talking about. But that's, sometimes people are that good with lying. They don't care. They can lie as fast as they can tell the truth. But if you're Christian, you kind of think, well, I got to make sure this sounds right. I want to tell the truth, but I want to do it in a certain way so I don't look bad. And that's not what Jesus is asking us for. And he says, you know, famously, this is one of, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. He says, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. But from now on, you should know him, and you should have seen him, because you know me, because I am the truth. That's actually a passage, right? I'm going to lead you to life. I am the way to lead you to life through truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. Truth really matters a lot to Jesus, and you cannot have a proper relationship with Jesus Christ and an improper relationship with the truth. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament. The psalmist says this. This is really interesting. He says, look, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, in sin, my mother conceived me. He's saying, I was born with sin nature. I was born in sin. I came out crying, and when I was crying, I was sinning, because I was born with the nature to sin. 
This is a famous thing for those Presbyterians in the audience. You know what this is. You know, this is, this is your, your sin nature. I have a sin nature. I was born in a sin nature. I was born in sin. And you can see that in kids, by the way, the little tiny toddlers. Who teaches them to be selfish? No one. They just know how to be selfish because they have a sin nature, right? So, but he says this, but you desire truth in my innermost being. You want to look in me and see truth, he's saying. He's talking to God. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. So where there's truth, you'll give me wisdom. You want me to have truth in my innermost parts. So he's saying, look, I, I understand that I'm born into a corrupt world. That hasn't changed, by the way. I don't know if you've looked at the world lately. It's still corrupt. And sometimes I don't know which way's up and which way's out, right? But the truth within you overcomes the evil around you, is what they say. The truth that's in you gives you the wisdom to lead you out of the evil that's around you. I am the way out to life through truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. So truth is really, really important. But what we say with our mouth becomes the truth we really live. We can say we believe a lot of things, but what we speak with our mouth is actually where the truth comes from. Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will help us with this. So you're not alone. You've got the Holy Spirit to help you. He says, look, I have many things I want to say to you. This is, you know, he's telling his apostles at the end. Uh, but you can't bear them now. But the Spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's part of the Holy Spirit's job. I want to know what the truth is. Holy Spirit will take you into all truth. He will show you all things, and he will guide you into all truth. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But the truth that's hidden inside of you that you don't confess, like I believe it, but I didn't tell anybody. I know the truth, but I didn't say it. I'm just going to not say anything, right? If I don't say anything, I'm not lying. I know the truth. I know I should speak, but I'm not going to. I'm going to keep the truth to myself. That doesn't help you overcome anything. In Romans 10, uh, Paul says this, look, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes for righteousness, but with the mouth, the confession is what brings you to salvation. It's not enough to know the truth. You've got to be willing to speak the truth. These guys that got called out as examples of what God wants to see in all of us, they spoke the truth. In fact, Stephen spoke the truth when if he'd just been quiet, he'd been okay. We're not going to get to this, but it's in the rest of this uh, Acts 6. I urge you to read it. He has a chance to be quiet and be fine. He can't. He speaks and they kill him. The St. Henry will stone him. It's the first martyr of the church because he can't not tell the truth. I'm sorry. You asked a question. I can't say nothing. I'm going to speak the truth. So I would rather speak the truth than, than, than to keep it hidden. He has to speak it. Um, but that's really good because truth that's spoken has power and lie that's shouted is still just a lie. Like you can whisper a truth and change everything. You can shout a lie and change nothing. The world tries, boy, it's very, very, the lies get very loud out there. But it's just lying and shouting it, you know, I'll, I'll shout it lie higher and stronger and that'll make you believe it. No, you still don't believe it. It's just hurting your ears now, right? But truth can be whispered and change everything. Uh, in, again, Jesus speaking, he says, look, you heard it said that you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I'm telling you, don't make any vows at all. This is a famous verse too. Because here's what we do. Uh, we're so used to lying to people that we want to, them to believe us, they don't. <laughs> 
So what we do is we add things onto it. I swear to God, this is true. I swear on my grandmother's grave. I couldn't find my grandmother's grave, by the way. I swear on my grandmother's grave. This is true. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Whatever we do to add to what we're saying. Look, I know I'm a liar, but this time you can believe me because I'll swear on a Bible. I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear. And Jesus is saying, don't. Just, just don't. Don't even bother with that. Uh, you can't, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by the king of Jerusalem. In fact, don't even make an oath on your life. Don't do any of it. You can't make a white hair black. You're, you're adding an oath is not going to change anything. If you're lying, you're lying. Add whatever oath you want. You're still lying. If you're not lying, you don't need the oath. He says this, he says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more, he says, is evil because you're trying to manipulate people. He says, don't even go there. Just say yes or no. But the only way this works is if you live a life where when you say yes, it's yes, and when you say no, it's no. This is what Jesus is saying. If your life hasn't shown them the truth, they're not going to believe you. I don't care who you swear by. Just speak the truth and then live the truth, and people will get to know you as a reputation of telling the truth, and they'll be able to trust you. We cannot come to God unless we're willing to embrace the truth. You cannot come to God. You can't really get close to God unless you want to say, yep, you know what? I'm willing to see what's true about me and I'm willing to confess that. Because the Holy Spirit will, will show you what's true about you. He'll show you sometimes that your motives weren't really clean there. You kind of pretended that they were, but they weren't. He'll show those things to you. But you have to be willing to face the truth if you're going to face Jesus. Because Jesus is the truth. That's what he tells us. It's not like, oh, I kind of like the truth. He is the truth. There's, I'm going to close with this. This is, a, this is a scripture of Jesus. He's talking to the woman at the well. He says something that's almost sad. I mean, really kind of, I want to hear this, this wistfulness in Jesus' voice because she asks him about worship and the right way to worship. And she's worried about where? Up in high places or in the temple? Where, where should we worship you? And Jesus says, Neither. And what he says is a little bit sad. He says, look, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Here's what's sad. He says, it's coming. It's not here. The day is coming when we'll have true worshipers who worship my Father in spirit and truth. But they're not, not, that day's not now. It's coming. It's not here yet. That's sad isn't it? Because he was walking around and speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees who kind of gameplayed everything, and they weren't trying to worship in truth at all. They're trying to worship in tradition, which is not the same thing. He says, but the day is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In fact, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking that. Someone comes honestly to him and worships him in truth. That's what God wants. So he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's what he's calling us for. This is what he wants. You want to know what authentic worship is? It's truth. I'm coming here, and I'm not just saying these words. I believe these words. I see this. I'm coming to God because I honestly believe what I'm saying about him. I know that's truth. I'm going to speak the truth. I know who I am. I know who God is. I'm going to speak that as truth. I'm not hiding behind any kind of mirrors here. I'm coming, and I'm going to be honest with God. Are you willing to worship God 
in spirit and truth because he's still looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Would you all please pray with me?